Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We are in a series called The Way of Jesus, a study in the Gospel of Mark. During this series, we want to spend time with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live the way of Jesus. Thank you for joining us. Well, hey, everybody. Good morning. My name is Brian. It is good to be with you. Uh, I love when we gather. One of the things we do is open God's word to see what he wants to say to us. And I believe he is going to do that today. Uh, today, we dive back into the gospel of Mark. We began this gospel earlier this year, and it's worth sharing again some background of the book of Mark Because knowing the background helps us as we look at each individual story. And as we study this book of the Bible, if you're following in your notes, the reason we're doing this, we're spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live the way of Jesus. We want to learn how to live his way. And something happens. Something happens when we spend time with Jesus. An authentic encounter with Jesus changes us. And that's certainly true about the story we're going to look at today. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. It's the second book of the New Testament, Matthew and then Mark. If you don't have a Bible or a digital device with a Bible on it, we have black Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. The Gospel of Mark can be found on page 812 of those Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that home with you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's word. We say that each week, and it's because we mean it. We mean it, and we're serious about it. God's word is that important. So as we get started, Gospel of Mark, would you read the first verse of this gospel with me? It's in the first gray box on your notes or on the screen. Read this with me, church. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Uh, the NIV, that's the ESV, the NIV translation says it this way, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. If you're following in your notes, the word gospel means good news. They're interchangeable throughout the Bible. This is a book, and I could argue that the entire Bible is a book about the good news of Jesus and the salvation, the healing, and the freedom that he brings. And I just want to say, if if we read this gospel of Mark, or we read the Bible, and we don't look for the good news, then we're not reading it correctly. The Bible, this gospel is the good news. And if you're following in your notes, this good news was the first New Testament gospel written, and it was written by a man named John Mark. It was the first New Testament gospel written. The other gospel writers that we have used Mark as a source. So it's believed that Mark was a traveling companion of Peter. You all have heard of Peter, the leader of the disciples, and they took the good news, the gospel around the Roman world. And that's why the gospel of Mark is also referred to sometimes as the memoir of Peter. He's recording what he's learning from Peter. And it's believed this gospel was written, if you're following in your notes, it was written to the church in Rome somewhere between 64 and 68 AD, just 30 years after the death 
and resurrection of Jesus. And what we need to know about this time frame in history, right? We, we've got to know this because living in Rome during the mid to late 60s influenced the Mark's writing. It influenced this gospel. Being a Christian in the Roman Empire meant being part of a distinct minority. If you were a follower of Jesus in Rome, you stood out because you lived differently. It affected the way you lived and you were singled out for terrible persecution. In the Roman Empire, you gave your allegiance to Caesar, the emperor who was referred to actually as the son of God. And in this one opening verse, introducing this gospel, Mark is stating that Caesar is not the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. This book is about a new beginning that will change the trajectory of the entire world. In this book, we see, if you're following in your notes, that Jesus is the king who has arrived to usher in his kingdom. And it's a kingdom that is different than the kingdoms of this world. Mark is telling these early followers of Jesus that there is one king, King Jesus, and he is worth living and dying for. So with that background in mind, we now know what it was like to stand out as a follower of Jesus in the early church in the Roman Empire. So with that in mind, I want to invite you to flip over to Mark chapter 5. Flip over to Mark chapter 5, verse 1. I loved getting to study this text this week, and I'm excited to talk with you about it and what God wants to share with us this morning. So whenever we read a gospel, we're in Mark chapter 5. Whenever we read a gospel, it is a good practice when we read it. If you're at home and reading it, it is a good practice to pay attention to what happens immediately before the text you're reading and immediately after the text you're reading because the authors are putting things in a certain order for a certain purpose. And I just want to go back because we left off at the end of chapter 4. If you remember, Steve taught on Easter Sunday at the end of chapter 4. And at the end of chapter 4, Jesus is in his home base. It's a town called Capernaum. And he says, let's go over to the other side. Let's go to the other side. So do we have an idea what that means? I want to put a map on the screen for you. This is Galilee, the region Jesus did most of his ministry in, and about the year 29. You can see Capernaum is circled in red. That's where Jesus and the disciples were. And then you can see a little town named Kersey that's circled in red. That's where they're going. They're going to the other side. All of this is taking place around the Sea of Galilee. Kersey is one of the towns of the Decapolis, which we'll talk about In just a few minutes. So in chapter 4, right? They're in Capernaum. The disciples got in a boat with Jesus. And they put out to sea. And a great storm arose. It threatened their lives. And we're told Jesus was asleep in the boat. Sound asleep. And the disciples wake Jesus up. He rebukes the wind and the waves. And immediately the sea goes from crashing waves to placid water. Only God could do that. Only God could do that. And here's just a little backstory for you on the sea, the sea or Lake of Galilee. It was called both of those things. It's going to play into our story today. So just tuck it away for a few minutes. Jewish people were terrified of the sea. 
terrified. Jews were not seafarers. They were desert nomads. I heard one teacher say this. I thought it was great. The Jews were promised the promised land, not the promised lake. Jews called the sea the abyss. It was a place to be feared and a place where evil resided. That all stemmed from creation and the story that describes the beginning of the world as a watery chaos from which God brought order. It was the abyss, the place where evil resided. Just tuck that away for a few minutes. And if you look closely at the story of Jesus calming the storm in Mark 4, Mark is communicating to us subtly that this storm was more than a storm. There was evil involved in this storm. There was demonic activity causing the storm. In Mark chapter 1 verse 25, when Jesus is talking to an unclean spirit or a demon, he says, be quiet and be still. The same words he uses to rebuke the waves and the storm in chapter 4. So we we get started looking at our story today, knowing that Jesus has just demonstrated his power over the wind and the waves. And now we get another story demonstrating Jesus' power over evil. So Mark chapter 5, verse 1. You can follow along in your Bibles or your devices or on the screen. 5.1 says, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And we're going to pause there for just a second. Because the background here fills in our story. I want to put the map back up. The region of the Gerasenes is also called the regions of the Gadarenes in Matthew. You can see the city of Gadara named after that town. This area generally is known as the Decapolis, which means ten cities. And because of the geographic details given to us in this story, like the proximity to the lake and the tombs cut into rocks, many believe this story takes place in a town called Kersey. At the time of Jesus, the Decapolis was part of the Roman Empire, and the ten cities were populated primarily with Roman troops. And the lifestyle in these Gentile areas was pagan. It was violent, debauchery everywhere you looked, prostitutes at the temples of all the false gods that the Romans worshipped. And we have to understand the relationship between the Roman Empire, the Gentiles, and the Jews. The way they viewed one another is so important. The Romans hated the stubborn loyalty of the Jewish people to their one God. They hated it. And to the Jews, Rome was evil incarnate. It was evil on earth. So Jesus says to the disciples back in chapter 4, while they're in Jewish territory in Capernaum, let's go to the other side. And I'm sure the disciples are like, why would we ever go there? What are you doing, Jesus? And I believe this with everything in me. I believe Jesus knew there was one guy on the other side of the lake, who was demon-possessed and needed to be saved and freed. He knew that, and he went to the other side of the lake. He went to the far country, is what it's called in some texts. He went into the darkness to rescue one person. Don't ever think Jesus doesn't know you and how he can free you and save you. So we've traveled from Capernaum, Across the lake, across the abyss, we're in the Decapolis on the other side of the lake in the far country, and we're told in verses 2 to 4. You can see this on the screen or in your Bibles. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. 
This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. They couldn't bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. So Jesus and his disciples are greeted by a man with an impure spirit, also called an evil spirit. In the original language, we would have read a demonized man. A demonized man. So let's just hit the pause button here again, because that may have got your attention. And I want to clear some things up and offer some comments on impure or evil spirits, because we need to understand this to understand the story today as well. First, I'll just, I'll admit it. We struggle with the supernatural here. Right In America, we struggle with the supernatural because our Western way of thinking leads us to believe that what's real is what we can touch, see, taste, and smell. But according to the Bible, if you're following in your notes, there are two competing kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. There is an invisible world all around us. Filled with spiritual beings. And the Bible refers to these spiritual beings in a number of ways. Angels, demons, spirits, powers, principalities, rulers, or little g-gods. These kingdoms have different goals. The kingdom of God, kingdom of Satan, two different goals, two different endgames. God's desire is that all people would be saved and live in relationship with him. Now and forever. That is his desire. But if you're following in your notes, Satan's two primary objectives. To destroy God's people and defame God's glory. Those are his two objectives. And these evil spirits are at work right now in the world by directing governments bringing sickness, promoting division, tempting us to sin, and destroying lives. They destroy lives through abject poverty, through abuse, addictions, violence, even destroying the lives of the unborn through unjust laws. Now listen, you may not believe in the supernatural, and maybe I've just lost you for a few minutes. You're kind of questioning what, where we're going with this message. Let me make two comments if you're in that realm right now. One, especially if this is your first time here. We don't talk about this frequently. We're not obsessed with angels and demons and evil spirits, but we don't shy away from it when the biblical text talks about it. And as we walk through the Bible, we talk about what's in the text in front of us. And today, this is what's in front of us. And here's my second comment. You may not believe what I just said about Satan and angels and demons and an invisible world all around us, but I guarantee, I guarantee you have or you will attribute something reprehensible to evil at some point in your life. And you won't have an explanation for it. Right? The actions of Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany systematically murdering over 6 million Jewish people in the Holocaust, that was not one man acting alone to eliminate an entire people. There was evil at work. On December 14th, 2012, when a man entered Sandy Hook Elementary School and killed 26 people, 20 of whom were 6 and 7 years old, there was evil at work there. 
So this stuff is around us and we just don't see it. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, has a great quote about recognizing the fact that there may be more going on than we can see. He said this, as long as you look at your problems and the problems of the world strictly in terms of flesh and blood, you are going to inevitably and continually be defeated. There's more going on than we can see. So in our story, there's a guy who's demonized. He is under the control and influence of an impure spirit, a real spiritual being at war with God and his son, Jesus. And he's trying to destroy this man. We're told a few things about this guy. He lives among the dead. Here's a picture of what this might have looked like in Kersey. You can see tombs cut into the rock. It's where they would bury people and it would be filled with bones. This is where the man lives. It's said that no one could bind him, which means to tame him. Tame, it's a word used for animals, not people. People treated him like a wild animal and he acted like a wild animal. He is banished as an outcast from society and he dwells where the living don't live. We're told he exhibits supernatural strength and the people were afraid that he would hurt them and he did hurt himself. And he's crying out night and day. He's tormented. Continuing in verses six and seven, we read more about this man. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. The evil spirits, I mean, just notice a few things here. The evil spirits recognize Jesus. And they recognize his power and the man falls to his knees. The word used is proskuneo, which is a posture of worship. The man bows down to Jesus. The New Testament book, James, even tells us that the demons know who Jesus is and they shudder. So when the man cried out, Jesus, son of the most high God, there's a recognition of who Jesus is. But don't mistake that with a confession of faith. Right, There was a belief in the first century that names had power. So rather than a confession of faith, this evil spirit is attempting to gain control over Jesus. And it doesn't work. And there's irony in these verses, right? The demons who are torturing the man ask not to be tortured. They're afraid of their future. They know they've ultimately been defeated. They know one day they will be completely dismantled. And they're afraid. They're afraid. And in response to this, we read in verses 8 to 10 that Jesus says this. Read this with me. Second gray box are on the screen. Full voice, friends. Read this. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Notice, no fireworks, no bells and whistles. If you're following your notes, Jesus heals the man with a word. He doesn't resort to any of the special techniques that other exorcists in the ancient world employed. No odd recipes. 
No secret prayers, no formulas, no medical procedures. He speaks a word. The power of Jesus alone drives the demons out. I've talked to missionaries around the world and I've seen this with my own eyes. Evil spirits cannot stand against the name of Jesus or his word. They have no power. And in this man's response, we see this evil spirit has accomplished its goal. Remember, people are image bearers of God, and the goal of evil is to distort and destroy the image of God in people. And this has happened so profoundly in the man that he's been robbed of his identity, his most basic identity, his name. We also see in this man's answer, Jesus is not dealing with just one evil spirit, but a powerful network of demons. Remember, we're in Roman territory, and a Roman legion of the military consisted of up to 6,000 soldiers. So Jesus is dealing with multiple evil spirits at work in this man. And then if you go back and look at verse 10, this is so interesting, right? I mean, what would an evil spirit ask of Jesus? The request of the demons is not to be sent out of the area. In the original Greek, it says, do not send us out of the country. So one more interesting piece of information about evil spirits that we find in the Bible, there are evil spirits and demonic powers assigned to geographic locations and assigned to nations that animate the leadership from the top down. So perhaps in this situation, the evil spirits have been assigned to the Decapolis and they need to remain there. So they beg to stay. Don't send us out of the country. If you thought this story was a little weird, just show of hands, a little weird? <laughs> yeah, be honest with one another here, right? Buckle up as we get ready to land the plane. <laughs> if this is your first time here, let me just say it again. Thank you for braving the rain. Thank you for listening about a demonized man. Now you're about to hear about wild pigs. All right. Beginning in verse 11, we read, A large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Real quick, let me just address this before we walk into this story. I just want to say it because somebody might be thinking it, right? For those of you who love animals, or those of you who love bacon, and it bothers you that Jesus killed these pigs. I just want you to notice this because I've been asked before, why did Jesus kill the pigs? Why did he do that? Jesus didn't kill the pigs. He gave permission to the demons to go into the pigs, revealing his authority and his power over evil. And the demons send the pigs into the water to their death. But why the pigs? What in the world is going on with the pigs? And there's something bigger going on here than just the healing of the man. I believe Jesus is symbolically demonstrating what God will do for the entire region of the Decapolis and the entire world. 
I think Mark is trying to clearly communicate Jesus' power and authority over evil in this story. Remember, the Roman military is occupying Judea and the Decapolis. We're in Roman territory. And at the time of Jesus, the Roman military in these regions had adopted the mascot of a wild pig. They did this for several reasons. One, in the Roman Empire, animal sacrifices were offered to the many false gods, and the most common animal sacrifice was a pig. And they adopted the emblem of a pig to humiliate the Jewish people, because Jews thought pigs were unclean animals. Here's just a couple pictures so you can get an idea of what I'm talking about. This is a coin from this era with Caesar on one side and the wild boar on the other. It was also on their pottery, so we know it was in their homes. Pictures of wild pigs was their emblem. And if you start tying this together, Rome is the personification of evil, and the emblem of pigs symbolized their evil. And the pigs run down the hill, into the water, back into the abyss, where evil dwells, where they belong. If you read the same story in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, verse 31, it says here, And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. Don't miss this. Jesus is demonstrating his power to heal the demonized man and to vividly show what will inevitably happen to evil once and for all in this world. Author David Garland captures this idea when he writes this. Jesus casting out demons is an undeniable sign that the kingdom of God and Satan's realm is being routed. They are not routine miracles. They represent the inevitable submission of this world and its powers to the reign of God. This story in Mark chapter 5 is a signpost of the kingdom of God breaking into the world. And it's at this point in the story, all the people are amazed, and they all decide to follow Jesus. Except that doesn't happen. If we read verse 14 through 17, we read, Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. And if you're following in your notes, the people asked Jesus to leave because he cost them something and he would require change. Right? These pigs cost somebody something. They belonged to somebody and they just lost their business and their livelihood. Maybe it was for the whole town. It may have also altered their worship of false gods. Maybe this was a herd of pigs that would be used for sacrifice. Whether that's true or not, their pigs were more important to them than the healing of this person. And they didn't like Jesus because following Jesus always costs something. And they asked Jesus to leave because following Jesus always leads to life change. It always does. And knowing Jesus, this wouldn't have been easy for them. I admit it. But knowing Jesus was the true king. If they wanted to admit that, if these Romans wanted to admit that, 
then it would force them to stop from worshiping the emperor and the false gods of Rome. And admitting Jesus had power over everything else would require life change, and that was too much for them. It was too much. Following Jesus requires us to change. He changes us and our hearts and our lifestyles. Listen, there are people who know all about Jesus. They know who he is. They know his power. They know what he offers. They know he offers a better way. And they say no thanks because they don't want to change. Following Jesus costs something and it requires us to change. And the people in the Decapolis were not interested in either of those things. And then our story ends with one more conversation between Jesus and the healed man, not the demonized man, the healed man. In verses 18 to 20, we read, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. This is one of my favorite parts of the story. And this is so fascinating because rather than take the man with him, Jesus sends the man back to his own people on mission. We've talked a lot about this lately. Jesus has us right where he wants us to join him in his mission of making disciples. If you're following in your notes, the man was sent as a missionary to his own people. The man was the first missionary to the Gentiles. And in Mark chapter 7, in a story we'll talk about later, Jesus returned to the region and people bring a man to Jesus so he can heal them. So by the time Jesus returns, two chapters later, people in the region knew who Jesus was and they believed he could bring healing and freedom to their lives. The man was a missionary to his own people. This man saw himself as a sent person on mission with Jesus. And what it reminds us is that we can't underestimate the influence of one follower of Jesus on a family, a business, a school, or a community. What a weird, amazing story demonstrating Jesus' authority over evil spirits and that his kingdom is greater than the kingdom of Satan. Weird and amazing and powerful. We always want to put ourselves in this story, right? We put ourselves in this story. So let me ask you, if you're following in your notes, where do you need the kingdom of God to break into your life? Where do you need to see the kingdom of God come into your life? I'm going to have you actually put your notes away so we can just talk together for a couple minutes. I'm also going to invite the choir out right now. They're going to close us in just a moment. But don't let the choir distract you. I'm going to finish up in just a minute and we'll enter into a time of prayer. But maybe you're here, right? Where do you need God to break into your life? Maybe you're here and there are some weird things going on. You can't explain it, right? Like maybe there's night terrors or there's fear, uncontrollable anxiety, stuff from your past, continuous sickness, a stronghold in your life or an addiction. Do you need freedom over something? 
Or there's something in your life that you feel enslaved to. This evil spirit enslaved this man. Maybe for you it's a relationship or money or pornography or self-righteousness or legalism. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's grief. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's your sexuality or your anxiety or your depression. What do you feel enslaved to that provides you with a perceived sense of security, significance, and belonging? What is it? Listen, I don't know if an evil spirit is causing that, but maybe. Maybe. Again, we don't think there's a demon behind everything, but maybe there is more going on than we think. And Satan is the one who tempts. So even as we wrestle with temptation, darkness is at work. So if you're here and you're struggling with something, but this thought might be going through your mind. Well, I'm not like that guy in the story. I'm not that bad. And maybe you don't look like the demon-possessed man. But as John Tyson, a pastor in New York City says, sometimes the darkest places are the human heart of people that look like they have it all together. So what is it that you need to be set free from? You've tried in your own power and it hasn't worked. Today you can go to God who has the power and the authority over evil and sin. Or you think there's no way Jesus would want to set you free. You're hopeless. Everybody else has hope, but you don't have hope. Our God is the God who goes to the other side of the lake, right into the darkness to heal broken and hurting people like you and like me. He can heal you from anything if you're willing to come to him. Where do you need to see the kingdom of God break into your life? Where do you need to see a move of God? And for those of you here, and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is a healing story, but it's also a conversion story. There's a condition that every human heart suffers from and cannot recover from, and it's called sin. And the only way to be free from the bondage of sin is, and to experience life right now and life eternal is to trust what Jesus accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection. So today can be the day you follow Jesus. But like we talked about in the story, it's gonna cost you something and it will require you to change. But following Jesus is worth it and he's the only way to experience life abundantly. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.